This morning's reading, we're in uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 14, and that's found in your blue Bibles on page 1042. Uh, 43, sorry, 1043. That's Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. It's God's word. Good morning, and uh, thanks so much for reading, Ed. And as I move my Bible away, can I encourage you to leave, have yours open, and I shall rely on my larger print copy. Um, if, if you've been here over these past weeks, you will not need to be reminded that in Luke's Gospel, we're following uh, Luke's account of Jesus' journey up to Jerusalem. And in just three weeks' time, we will be celebrating the victory that Jesus secured there, uh, his victory over death. Inevitably, Jesus' opponents are now becoming more agitated and vocal. If we go back through Luke's Gospel, we will see that they questioned his authority to forgive sins, accusing him of blasphemy. They complained when he accepted an invitation to go to have a meal with a tax collector. 
Again, when he allowed a woman of ill repute to anoint him with perfume, they complained. They complained that he had no respect for the Sabbath, for he allowed his disciples to pick corn on one occasion and eat the grain from it, and that for them was unacceptable on the Sabbath. And not only that, but how could he, they questioned, how could he have no qualms about healing on the Sabbath? But in today's passage, these opponents of Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes are not mentioned, but clearly uh, they are the leading uh, opponents of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, but in today's passage, they take their opposition to an altogether higher level. I'd like to look at our, uh, the passage in three sections. Um, uh, and first, firstly, really look at this the blasphemous charge against Jesus and Jesus' response. So we read, Jesus drove out a demon, as he often did. He was uh, regularly driving out demons. Nothing really unusual about that. The demon had caused uh, the man to be mute, and the overwhelming response of the crowd to the miracle was one of amazement. There's no suggestion that anyone doubted that it was a miracle. It was not open to debate or dispute. No grounds, absolutely, of questioning what had happened. The man was mute and is now speaking. A miracle had taken place and Jesus had exercised great power. But we read that some were not satisfied. Some tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. We might wonder just how much evidence did they need, these people. For almost three years, Jesus had been performing miracles and signs, such as the one they'd witnessed that day, and still they wanted yet another sign. And Jesus reacts to their demand in verse 29, which we will look at next week. But we need to recognise, of course, that there are many people like that today, that whatever evidence they have been given that Jesus is the Son of God, it's never sufficient for them. They ask for more. They just need a little bit more, or so they say. The truth is, of course, that many who respond in that way, though they're reluctant to admit it, they've already made their decision. They've decided not to have Christ in their life. They either close their eyes to all the evidence or they actually acknowledge that Jesus is truly the Son of God but still choose to have nothing to do with him. But, but today's passage, we're not concerned with those who ask for a further sign but we're concerned with those who charge Jesus with being satanic. Verse 15, But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. They cannot deny that a demon has been cast out. The mute man is now speaking. The only option available to them is to challenge the source of Jesus' power. And so they claim that he drives out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Seemingly, they do not confront Jesus directly with this claim, but they rather engage in conversation among themselves out of earshot. But Jesus knew their thoughts. 
as he knows all our thoughts. Uh, he did then and he does today. I have to admi- admit to be a little bit surprised by Jesus' reaction to the crowd. I think I might have expected him to act really strongly against this blasphemous claim. Did it not merit a similar response to the outrage that Jesus showed against the moneylenders in the temple? It's true that Jesus will soon have some harsh words for them. We see that uh, from verse 37 in this chapter. But for now, Jesus engages with these opponents who have uttered such a blasphemous accusation against him by demonstrating such grace and mercy. He's not immediately dismissive of their claims, but he reasons with them, trying to make them see their suggestion doesn't stand up to any scrutiny. He wants them to see the effect of what they're saying. In verse 18, uh, verse 17, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can this kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. If Satan himself is driving out demons which belong to his kingdom, it's like a civil war. His kingdom is divided and it will eventually collapse. Why would Satan employ such a strategy? One commentator suggested it's like as though Satan has sent one of his own henchmen to undo Satan's own work of destruction. It's really rather a ludicrous suggestion. And you have to wonder whether those who made the charge against Jesus were rather embarrassed by being made to look foolish as Jesus unpacked the crowd what was being suggested. And then in verse 19, uh, Jesus says, Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. There's some confusion over this term, your followers. In, some, in a number of versions of the Bible, it says your sons rather than your followers. And commentators are divided over the meaning of sons. Who are the sons? Some assume that it is referring to the Jewish exorcists. There are plenty of people in that um, time who were exorcists, and they drove out demons. But other commentators doubt whether Jesus would actually endorse those exorcists, exorcists and put their work on the same level as his. And so a preferred interpretation is that sons is not actually your followers, but actually Jesus' own disciples. So Jesus would be arguing that he is sharing this ministry with his disciples. But then in verse 20, Jesus says, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is the only other option. Either Jesus is driving out these demons by Beelzebul, or 
He's driving them out by the finger of God. What about this expression, the finger of God? Um, It comes in Exodus chapter 8, when Pharaoh, if you remember, well, we all remember what happened in Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh was refusing to allow the Israelites to leave Egypt, and the nation was subject to a number of plagues. When the plague of gnats came, the magicians tried to produce gnats themselves. How foolish, how foolish. And they obviously failed. And they informed Pharaoh that the plague was the work of the finger of God. And Jesus says that if this is true, if it is by the finger of God that this man is able to speak, then there is only one conclusion. The kingdom of God has come. And we know that it was true. The driving out of that demon and all the other signs that Jesus had performed over a period of three years provided overwhelming evidence that through Jesus, God had broken peacefully into creation to reclaim humanity from Satan's grip. Jesus' power is greater than that of demons. He is stronger than Satan. Uh, We read read, um, stronger than Satan. And his power and authority reverse the effect of sin. This exercise of power explains why Paul was able to call the gospel the power of God, which he does in Romans chapter 3, verse 16. And in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul explains how we who now live under God's authority were once under the authority of Satan. Let me remind, let me remind you of the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2, uh, which Paul wrote... As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving in wrath, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. This is what Jesus is speaking of in uh, this parable he told, verses 21, 23, a very short parable. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, His possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. We know who the strong man is. It's Satan. He's strong, incredibly strong. Uh, He was able to get Adam and Eve to rebel against God. He has kept captive the vast majority of people through every generation, causing them to be blind to the truth and keeping them as enemies of the one who is the light of the world. They are his possessions, uh, we see in verse 21, and those possessions are described to be in safe. 
Of course, that ignores the judgment they will face when Christ returns. Those possessions, they will not be saved from his judgment. Other versions say that they are in a state of peace. And that is true of those who are spiritually dead. If they have no awareness of Christ and of his future return and of the day of judgment, they have no reason to be fit to fear or to be anxious. In their ignorance of the truth, they can be at peace until Jesus returns. We know that from our many, many friends and work colleagues, neighbours. They don't have a care, a concern about the future because they're spiritually dead. They do not know of the judgment that comes. But of course, the stronger man is Christ. You remember that when people, people were wondering whether John the Baptist was the Messiah and he told them, that it would be someone more powerful than him. Those who are now Christ's followers have been rescued by him, the stronger man, who has overcome Satan. We are the plunder who have been brought into God's kingdom. Verse 23 provides a severe warning Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There are two kingdoms, and there is no fence between them on which to perch. I can make myself quite comfortable sitting on fences. I do it all the time. I can remain on them for days, weeks, months, even years. If I'm not persuaded about something, I'm content to take a neutral stance. It's an option we have when we are persuaded that we cannot vote for any political party. We can choose not to vote. We can remain neutral. But neutrality is not an option when it comes to the kingdoms of God and the world. Please take careful note of what it says in verse 23. Whoever is not against me is with me. And you will note that I've misquoted that. I hope you recognise that. People think it says that, and people think it should say that, and people live as though it does say that. They are confident that they must be on God's side because they hold nothing against him. They never blaspheme or curse him. But the default position is that we are against God unless we have responded to God's invitation to be rescued. The Apostle John could not have made it any clearer when he wrote his Gospel and penned probably the most popular verse in the whole of the New Testament. You know what it is. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a pity that verse 18 is not equally familiar. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. 
He could not be clearer. We are only true, truly safe for eternity in God's kingdom when we believe in Jesus. And to believe in Jesus means firstly believing that he died in our place to pay the penalty for, a sin, for our sin. Secondly, repenting of our sin. And thirdly, asking God to forgive us. And the default position is that until a person takes that step, that person remains in Satan's kingdom and stands condemned. There's a second part to verse 23. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. All who are with Jesus will have a desire to support his work of gathering sheep into the fold, winning people for his kingdom. It does not mean, of course, that all will have the gift of being evangelists, but it does mean that all who side with Jesus must also side with his longing to build his kingdom. Conversely, those who are against Jesus cannot possibly engage in the work of gathering. Many will, either passively or actively, be those who hinder the work of gathering to the extent that they will be like wolves who would scatter the sheep. In verses 24 to 26, we have another short parable. It's continuing the theme of exorcisms and unclean spirits. Verse 24, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. It's possible that Jesus' purpose in telling this parable is to draw attention to the inadequacy of what the Jewish exorcists were about. They may have been able to expel impure spirits, but they had nothing to offer to fill the void. That is true and may have been the reason behind the parable. But I'm inclined to think that Jesus was reinforcing what he said in verse 23. Neutrality is not an option. So a person who has had an impure spirit driven out is likened in this parable to a house that has been swept clean. The problem is that the house remains empty, just waiting for someone to take up residence. Its former tenant, not having found anywhere else suitable, decides to return to his former home with some of his mates, seven other spirits who are more wicked than he was. I think the point that Jesus wanted to be grasped is this. Emptiness is a neutral state and is not an option. A void will not remain empty. It always needs to be filled. Jesus longs to be invited in so that he, who is light, can be the occupant of our lives. And only he can truly cleanse us from what God finds so offensive, our sin. And if Jesus is not invited, then darkness will take over. Our passage ends with what seems like 
seems like a, a, an interruption from a woman in the crowd. We read in verse 27, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Possibly this woman was tired of all the talk about evil and impure, evil and impure spirits. Perhaps she was struggling to grasp the meaning of what Jesus was saying and just wanted to cut, cut through it and have her say. Recognising that Jesus was a good man, she wanted to give credit where she thought it belonged, to Jesus' mother. And of course, Jesus' mother recognised uh, that she was blessed. Whilst pregnant with Jesus, Mary burst into song, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. But Jesus does not respond to the statement about his mother. His real concern, as it always has been, was for those who needed to hear the word of God and to obey it. Jesus replied, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And I believe that through these words, Jesus was extending an invitation to all in the crowd, even those who had made that blasphemous charge against him, to be truly blessed by hearing the word of God and obeying it. I find this remarkable, that Jesus receives the worst possible charge of blasphemy, and yet he engages with these accusers, he reasons with them, instead of pouring scorn upon them and walking away, and then he invites them to be blessed. There's much we can take away from this passage, and the Lord will have spoken to us in different ways. I just want to say three things very briefly in closing. First, again using the words of one commentator, in the ultimate cosmic war, Jesus and Satan stand toe-to-toe in battle. But Jesus' miracles demonstrate that Satan's cause is ultimately lost. The die is cast. And though he will and is causing immense damage himself and through evil men who are in his grip, Satan will lose, for Jesus is the stronger one. Second, let us recognise the reality of Satan's power. We must stand firm and fully clothed in that whole armour of God which Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 6. There's no time to refer to that, but perhaps it's something we ought all just take a moment to read again, to reflect upon Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. And third, question, are you in the kingdom of light, God's kingdom, where Jesus rules? Or are you thinking that you can occupy some 
non-existent middle ground. Anyone who attempts to take up a neutral position is not with Jesus, but against him. If there's anyone here this morning who regards themselves that they're not against God, but they have not affirmed their faith in Jesus and therefore are not with God, then I would encourage you just to move away and get off that uh, middle ground, for it doesn't exist. For either we are with God or we are against him. Allow me to, to pray. O great God of highest heaven, come occupy my lowly heart, own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power, let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me, make me yours forevermore. Amen.